He said there are things we know, knowns, and then there are known unknowns, which means we don't know them, but we know that we don't know them. And then there are unknown unknowns, which means that we don't even know that we don't know them. So if I discover data about something known, it's not a big deal. It's non-controversial. I mean, I can tell you how many people are hungry, they need food. Uh, we need more education for a lot of poor people. Uh, let's organize fundraiser and get education done, uh, free medicines. So those are causes that are well known as you may call them human services causes that humans need those things and we need to provide them. And those are very important causes. Those are known and maybe the details are unknown as to you know exactly uh, how much is needed, where it's needed, how to go about it. So there are that in that sense, they are known unknowns. But what if I discover something that is an unknown unknown, which means that you don't even know there's a problem. And I'm discovering that and I'm telling you about it. So it's kind of invisible to you. Like with the metaphor snakes in the Ganga. In the Ganga, you don't expect there are there's danger. You don't expect there's danger. You expect that everybody around you is nice guy. But if someone says, you know, there are snakes around here, you say, oh, Ganga me sample. Wow. And so the idea is to shock you into knowing that there are issues under the surface, hidden, that you ought to know about. They are important. The metaphor of poison. There are people who breed these snakes, who spread them. There is harm being caused and it may not be known to you. So these are unknown unknowns, if you will. support this very, very important event of the book launch of our very esteemed authors, uh, Rajiv Malhotra and uh, Vijaya Vishwanathan. It's really a proud moment for me because I've known Rajiv and his beautiful wife Indrani Malhotra for many, many, many years. And, and um, when I met them, Rajiv was this big, huge business tycoon, you know, doing extremely well, very busy, always traveling. And then all of a sudden, he was involved in this social cause. He just threw up everything to give back to society. And that is a really proud moment for him to give up everything that he had. So, um, you know, congratulations to Rajiv ji and Vijaya ji for this research and writing and launch of this most incredible, most important and most needed book. The Snakes in the Ganga. I also, before we begin the event, want to thank um, uh, Anil Bansal and uh, Ankur Vedya from FIA for their, uh, for their unconditional and, um, you know, their sponsorship and their support of this event. I couldn't have done it without them. And when I reached out to Anil, I barely had finished my sentence and he's like, I'll do this event. And the next moment he said, FIA is joining me. So thank you very much. And I'm going to invite uh, Rajivji on the podium.
and Anil Bansal and Ankur Vedya ji, please join us. So this, um, this book that we are here for is uh, one of the most controversial and uh, exciting and uh, most important and well-needed book, at least for our generation to pass down to the others. It unveils the uncomfortable truths concerning India's vulnerability. And in brief, this book highlights that the intense warfare against India's integrity is the work of well-orchestrated global machinery driven by a new ideology. The book also addresses Marxism, has been reincarnated as a race theory, and it recklessly maps into India, and how caste is being equated with race. Um, there is a lot of discussion on the mission to dismantle the Indian civilization and heritage by waging an uncompromising war on India's government, culture, industry, educational institutions, and the society. And obviously, we are going to hear a lot more about it from our esteemed authors, Rajivji and Vijayaji, who will share all, and before we call them to speak, I would like to briefly share their achievements. So on a personal level, I'm very honored and privileged, Rajiv, for allowing me to host this event. I feel extremely blessed. Um, he's a brilliant scholar. He's a no-nonsense man, misunderstood a lot of times, but you have to be patient to understand him. He has a heart of gold. Um, he is very determined. And like I said, he had left everything that he had you know, achieved as a business tycoon just to give back to this cause. Um, he has been a, personally a mentor to me and supported me for any and everything that I have reached out to him. So on a personal note, thank you very much. On a professional note, Rajiv was trained initially as a physicist and then as a computer scientist specializing in artificial intelligence in the 1970s. After a successful corporate career in the US, he became an entrepreneur and founded and ran several IT companies in 20 countries. He exited for all profit activities in the early 1990s. As the founder of his nonprofit Infinity Foundation, which is located in Princeton, New Jersey, he has spent his full time researching civilizations from a historical, social sciences, and mind sciences perspective. He has written about nine books, and all of them are displayed uh, back there. Please take a look. He also serves as the chairman of the Board of Governors for the Center of Indic Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, and is on the advisory board of the Indian Institute Institution of Advanced Studies in Shimla. His foundation is called the Infinity Foundation, and it has given more than 400 grants for research, education, and community work. This includes strategic grants to major US universities in support of pioneering programs in India. The foundation has funded and organized some of the earliest and largest international conferences on Indian mind sciences, comparative religion, and related topics. And Infinity Foundation regularly conducts Swadeshi ideology conferences to spread its ideas through scholarly publications, videos, series, and e-learning courses. It has also been translating many of Rajiv's books 
dubbing and subtitling his popular videos into Indian languages and developing animated videos to explain his major key concepts. And without further ado, I'm going to invite Rajiv ji to take us through his book, Snakes in the Ganga. And after that, we'll hear from our second author, Rajiv ji. So uh, first of all, I want to thank Seema, whom I've known for decades since she was a student. And we've been through a lot together. And I must say, she's one very, very solid person. And when she says something, she'll do it. And whenever you count on her, whenever you can call on her, she's always there. So thank you very much, Seema, for doing this. <clears throat> I also want to thank Anil Bansal. I want to thank the FIA for uh, organizing this whole event and many other people who've sponsored. I'll tell you why this event is one of a kind. It's because it's in New Jersey where I've lived, but I've never had a book event in my own state before. So you wonder well, why. This is where I have very good friends. We meet in each other's homes. Uh, there are people I've been to their homes hundreds of times. They've been to mine. And uh, we've been together outings here and there thousands of times we've met. But they know very little about my real work, who I really am. Uh, and then there's a group B. So that, let's say that's group A. And then present here is another group B whom I've hardly ever socialized with. I've never been to their home. They might have been to mine once maybe. But they are the ones who really follow the work. They meet me and they say, oh, I've read this and I've read that and I've read seven of your books or I've met you so many times. And I, and I feel kind of, uh, you know, I wish I'd have meet, gotten to know them better because they are really where my heart is at. So there's two diff different uh, kind of uh, friendships. One is sort of uh, social friendship. And the other is more sort of intellectual friendship. And uh, uh, Seema is one of the very few who's in both camps. He's the who knows me personally and also knows my work. And so when I go around different places, uh, I, do, I do more than 50 events a year in the United States, in North America, 50 events a year. Uh, we just did five in Canada, three or four at Harvard and Boston, five or six in the Bay Area, all of this in the last uh, two, three weeks. Uh, and, and we are continuing next weekend, we're going to uh, Washington DC where we have a pan IIT, the Indian ambassador will come, several other events. So like this, we do 50 or more events a year in, the, in North America and another 50 or more events a year in India. So we, it means we've done 100 events a year times 30 years. So that's a lot of events. And so people often ask me, what about your friends in New Jersey? Where are they? We don't see them. So, I, you know, that's kind of, uh, and I have to sort of figure out what would tell that. But I'm, I'm so delighted that my friends are finally here and thank you very much for being here you guys. <clears throat> so uh, the different ways of positioning the work we've done and then come to this particular book. So I'm going to try another way today. You know Donald Rumsfeld of the uh, Reagan and Bush era uh, once made a very uh, once made a statement that became very uh, famous. He said there are things we know, knowns, and then there are known unknowns, which means we don't know them, but we know that we don't know them. And then there are unknown unknowns, which means that we don't even know that we don't know them. So if I discover data about something known, it's not a big deal. 
it's non-controversial. I mean, I can tell you how many people are hungry, they need food, uh, we need more education for a lot of poor people. Uh, we let's organize fundraiser and get education done, uh, free medicines. So those are causes that are well known as you may call them human services causes, that humans need those things and we need to provide them. And those are very important causes. Those are known and maybe the details are unknown as to you know exactly uh, how much is needed, where it's needed, how to go about it. So there are that in that sense they are known unknowns. But what if I discover something that is an unknown unknown, which means that you don't even know there's a problem, and I'm discovering that and I'm telling you about it, so it's kind of invisible to you, like with the metaphor snakes in the Ganga. In the Ganga, you don't expect there are there's danger. You don't expect there's danger. You expect that everybody around you is nice guy. But if someone says, you know, there are snakes around here, you say, oh, Ganga me sample. Wow. And so the idea is to shock you into knowing that there are issues under the surface, hidden, that you ought to know about. They are important. The metaphor of poison. There are people who breed these snakes, who spread them. There is harm being caused and it may not be known to you. So these are unknown unknowns, if you will, uh, as to use that other, other metaphor. <coughs> the exposure of such a thing involves extraordinary risk. First of all, I better be right because I'm taking on a big established order. I'm taking on the huge prevailing point of view. Famous people, famous institutions, believe in something and I'm going to say, hey, there is more to it than what you believe. Either there are some fallacies in what you believe, or there are some side effects, maybe you invented this great medicine, but there are side effects I'll tell you that you don't want to hear about. Or maybe there's a whole different paradigm, a different way of connecting the dots. So when you, when you make something of this sort, the stakes are very high. If you are right, you could make a big impact. It's like a lawyer, to use a, an analogy, because Seema is a great lawyer, uh, makes a change in the case law, so then it sets a precedence, then you can, you actually made an impact. But the stakes are very high because to change, change the way law will be in the future or the courts will judge is not an easy thing to do. If it were easy, it would have been done. So the stakes are high to make that kind of impact. But it's also very risky because you're taking on, quote, the establishment of things, the way things are being seen as, as of now. So if my goal were to do things that are known or known unknowns or non-controversial, uh, then I would not leave my career. I would be another one of those where I'm doing my business for the last 30 years, making tons of money, which I was, and this could be a side thing. I would go and write a check here, there, get my name in that here and there, start this initiative, that initiative, do a fundraiser. Basically do non-controversial, ordinary things that people do when they want to give back without sticking my neck out, without putting myself on the line. I would do that. It would be a lot easier for me and my family for the last 30 years, believe me. But I chose a different way where I felt I'm willing to pay the price personally, which I did. I'm willing to stick my neck out. I'm willing to take the risk and become controversial because I feel there are snakes in the Ganga that need to be exposed, because there are unknown unknowns, because there are things that way which will change the paradigm if I'm right. So I'm willing to work hard in order to discover those things, bring them out, 
articulate them, go around the world and convince people, create a movement, okay? And at the end of the day, if I'm wrong, hey, you know, I'll get all kinds of things thrown at me. But if I'm right, there's no kudos, there's no reward for me personally. It's not like uh, somebody taking a very high risk technology gamble at the end of which if he's right, he'll become a billionaire. At the end of my journey, you don't become anything. You just basically stirred up a lot of new ideas and hopefully change the discourse. So that is the way we have positioned our mission at Infinity Foundation for the last 30 years, that we only want to take on problems, problem areas where we think the difference will be huge, where most people are not willing to do this kind of work because it's uh, tedious, it's complicated, and it's controversial, where the odds are very heavy that the big shots out there will shoot you down, where you're going to become, your name is going to be dragged through the mud sometimes, people will accuse you of all sorts of things and you've got to withstand it and say, okay, that's fine, that's power for the course, I'm okay, you guys can do it, but I'm going to stick to what I'm, what I'm all about. So that's the kind of journey we've taken and it's a, it's a journey for very few, uh, but we are very glad we've done it. There are some people in this room, I, I think, I hope that we'll have a time for them to make a statement or two. There is Devendra Singh here, uh, there is Nikunj here, uh, my co-author who's uh, on the line, she'll make a statement. Because you need to hear from those who've been involved in this journey for a long time because they, they know what, what it's all about. And it's, uh, it's, it's not the popular uh, one more Indian organization, Hindu organization, create a mandir, get people organized, do a fundraiser, have a lot of, uh, those, are, those are standard things that are known. There is no change in paradigm. Uh, another way to say it is that there are two kinds of causes. Uh, there are causes where you provide social services to those who need them. That's one kind of cause. There's another kind of cause where you change policy. You change policy. You actually, if, if you are successful, then some policy changes. It could be abortion policy like Supreme Court. That's a huge game changer. Uh, it could be policy on education. It could be policy on you know the way you, India is being perceived. Uh, it could be all sorts of things. So if you are into policy changing, then it is you're likely to bump into the big forces and you have to be prepared to take on that fight. So that's that's where uh, we are coming from. So now on to uh, the book, uh, Snakes in the Ganga. First of all, don't let the big size scare you. It is not for your exercise, although you could use it for that. You need to read 100 pages. Read the introduction which is 40, 50 pages, and read the one page or one and a half page overview of every chapter. The overview is we've taken a lot of trouble to capture the entire takeaway message of a chapter in one, one and a half pages kind of executive summary. So if you read the introduction, the, the 22 overviews, because there are 22 chapters, and the conclusion, in roughly 100 pages, you will know what you need to know about the book. So why is there the rest of the pages? Rest of the pages are, you know, in, in a court case, you make the opening arguments, which can contain your whole thesis. You make the closing arguments, which contain the whole thesis. But in between, you give out the evidence, you bring witnesses, you have all the forensics. So because the arguments are non, 
are not intuitively obvious because the arguments are such that I have to convince people who aren't believing all that. Uh, the burden of proof is on me with hard-hitting evidence. So the most of the pages in between are evidence, are quotations, are, you know, we've actually transcribed clips from people's videos and YouTube, what they've said, because they've said some very outrageous things that you may not want to believe otherwise. So the evidence being so strong and so important to clinch the argument has been contained in this book. So the book contains 1600 endnotes, which take a couple hundred pages, 1600 endnotes with all kinds of references where you go and get what, what the evidence, the proof that we are giving you, a hundred page bibliography. So there's a lot of citations. That is one third of the book or more than actually one third of the book is just this kind of a stuff. So what makes the book large uh, is the, uh, is the, it's loaded with proof uh, that you can look into. We've had a problem in previous books that the people we tackle and we quote them, they delete their videos. Some of them delete their website. Some of them change the website. So this time we have made a copy of everything we are citing on a, on a cloud. All the videos we are citing, we made a copy. So we put a team together for the last nine months of this and their job is to get screenshots. Uh, their job is, and you know, Bishwajit, who's here, he's head of our multimedia, he's part of that. So what we are doing is, people can delete everything they want, but we got the evidence, we got a copy of the evidence, because we expect, we expect people will be troubled by, because we've exposed them. So now the question comes out, raise the bar, and you guys want to say, okay, now what is this no, unknown unknown? So I'll tell you a few, few of the important things uh, that we've covered in this book. One of them, those of you who are from IITs or a technical education should know that there is a whole attack on IITs which started some years back with a Harvard University professor writing this book which is published by Harvard University Press of the world's most famous press, most prestigious academic press, I should say. And the basic thesis of this attack is that IIT is a structure for abusing Dalits. It's basically a structure which propagates Brahmin, uh, Brahmin elitism. And uh, this business of meritocracy is a sham because meritocracy is a cover for caste privilege. And when you bring people on merit and give them jobs in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley Actually, it is a prejudiced system. And when you bring people on H-1B visas without asking what is your caste and all that, actually you're creating a problem. You're bringing this whole caste abuse into America because these people, that is how the IITs were created. Now, it may sound very outrageous to you that this is being said because, uh, and, and, and many of you, who, uh, you should go to my YouTube site, uh, which is Raji Mohotra official. And about a month ago, we put up a 50-minute video discussion with IIT Madras professors. I went to IIT Madras, gave this whole thesis to the student community. They were not aware of it. I said, shame on you. You are the IIT people. I'm not even an IIT. You guys don't even know this is happening. I talked to the professors. Some of them knew about it, and but they hadn't spoken up, spoken out of it, uh, spoken about this. So then they agreed to come on video and give their views, give their rejoinder, which we are now, which we are, has gone viral. So then I've been to the IITians in 
Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area. I was there for a while. And the IITians, they were very appreciative that, you know, somebody is stood up. But I said, why aren't you standing up? And the answer is, well, we're busy or maybe, you know, the government will do it or, you know, we're happy you're doing it. The real truth is they don't want to pay the price. This whole business about sticking your neck out. It's inconvenient. It's better that somebody else stick their neck out because they can put them, they want, they're doing very well and they don't want to rock the boat. Sundar Pichai is not going to stick his neck out and say, hey, I'm an IIT and, and I don't think by, by this, you know. Uh, Satya Nadella is not going to do that. Uh, even though the people who attacked have named these guys as part of the problem, even though they've been named as, as, as part of this problem. So the, uh, the uh, matter is not just academic because a, an organization called Equality Labs in New York uh, decided to make a legal case out of this. And they filed a case against Cisco uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, accusing them of caste bias and saying that caste is racism and caste bias is racism and therefore the US laws on racism should be applied. And they took it to federal court and Cisco defended itself. Okay, this is going into appeals and things like that. But Cisco said, hey, we don't buy this. So then they, this organization went to Microsoft and Apple and Google and all these places and said, we want to do a census of who is of what caste in order to either show you that you have a problem, then we can help you fix it. Uh, and they, by the way, for this service, they charge $75,000 in our consulting fee to go around and they're conducting caste sensitivity workshops. So I started becoming aware of this problem because I started getting emails from people in Microsoft and people in Google and Facebook saying we are being embarrassed. We're being required to sit in caste sensitivity workshop training and uh, with our white colleagues and they're all looking at us saying, you know, is that what you are like? And all kinds of nonsense about our history and about our culture and allegations are being given. And those who raise their hand and ask questions are reprimanded. That they are, they are being, they are chauvinist, they are in denial. And so the HR department sensitized us that you should just sit quietly and listen. And it will be over. So this is what they're going through. So I got involved. And when I went to uh, the Bay Area a couple of weeks ago, I had a closed door thing with people from various companies, young tech workers who feel kind of, uh, you know, pressured, uh, intimidated that they are being attacked. So this is one example of an inconvenient fact that we brought out. This is just one example. It's chapter four. It's one chapter out of 22. There's many things like this that we have uncovered. So now uh, the good news is that some IITians are waking up and they want to help. So the reason I'm going to Washington this weekend is because the IIT group in a pan-IIT group in the DC area have invited me. Uh, the Indian ambassador is supposed to come also and they're going to uh, give me some support. We're going to have many conversations and they're saying, okay, you've made us aware, but we have to now help you out. So that's, so I'm hoping that one of the things. <laughs> so one of the successes is when you, when you do something and the target group who gets the benefit uh, actually appreciates it and they want to help you out. Because it's one thing for people who are proud of IIT to go here, get an award and be very famous and look good and go on 60 minutes and do an interview. But when, the, when their institution is attacked and that's the institution that made them rich, that's the institution that made them successful, then it's a moral duty for them to defend that institution, to stick their neck out for it. And to cop out is, I think, uh, uh, kind of an act of selfishness. 
So this is one example I'm, I'm, I'm uh, giving you. There are there are another example, which I would like uh, Vijaya to focus on because she's really gone very deep into this, is the whole attack on family structure. Now you may wonder what does it have to do with this? What is attack on IIT got to do with attack on family structure? And you will find out that there is a, there is a common theoretical framework. There is a common theoretical framework, which is Marxism that started in Europe becoming Americanized. Americanized and turned into things like critical race theory, wokeism, in the guise of helping blacks, which we support. We, I supported the Black Lives Matter movement. But it went further than just supporting certain people. It became a kind of like a religious dogma of its own, a political uh, hierarchy of its own, and well beyond its original intentions or, or its original stated goals. So this type of uh, uh, tidal wave has gone to the extent of now attacking families as structures of abuse that are pro propagating abuse into the next generation. So in this book, we have a whole chapter on Harvard professors, again, we picked on, who are basically saying to the Indian students there that you should revolt against your family, families and your family structure because the abuse built into your civilization from the very origins is propagated through families. And as long as there are families, they're going to keep uh, transmitting these values to the next generation and this kind of abuse will continue propagating. So you have to dismantle the family structure in order to get rid of this oppressiveness that, that, is, that is built into the DNA of Indian society. So this is a very weird statement if you, when, you, when you first hear about it, but we, got, we, show, we give you the evidence, we give you what people are talking about. So like this, there are several uh, what we call Breaking India Forces. The uh, book that I wrote a dozen years ago called Breaking India became a very very popular book. Talked about foreign nexuses working with people within India and together uh, creating a Breaking India kind of an environment where they were breaking India in terms of ideology, identity, uh, sense of unity, not breaking India physically but emotionally, mentally, psychologically. And then this created a huge movement from on our side to counter it. That movement has gained a whole lot of strength. Some of the people sitting here are now leaders in that movement. Uh, now, this new book I'm calling Breaking India 2.0 because the forces have become more sophisticated. They, they have evolved to another level. Uh, and so that is Breaking India 2.0. And what is an unknown, unknown to our people is that, hey, these, these things exist. Now we have to come and deal with them. One of the, one of the examples of this Breaking India 2.0 is in Chapter 22. Uh, there is something called Omidyar Network in India. Omidyar is a billionaire worth $20, $25 billion, PayPal, and many other things he did. And he's targeted India as a place where he wants to bring social justice, which is a code word, social justice, human rights. Uh, he wants to bring social re-engineering. He wants to do what is called impact investing, means I want to make an impact on society. Well, you ask what kind of impact on society? It is not free food, free education, medical, it's policy. You want to change the policies in India, which means get into the Indian government, put in 
consultants into Niti Aayog, which is the planning commission, could put in consultants into all these different ministries and from within try to come up with new policies. So this policy intervention uh, is one part of what they are doing. Another part what they are doing is investing in a lot of uh, venture capital, tech venture capital, particularly focusing on artificial intelligence related technologies that will get data, data acquisition, surveillance, surveillance of villages, surveillance. So they have a database of all elections, central, state, municipality, panchayat level. There's, you know, foreign entities are building databases of that kind. Every election since independence and what was the outcome and what was the demographics and what are the trends and building AI models to do prediction and how to intervene if you want to intervene, what is the most logical place to intervene, where, where you can make the biggest impact, which community, what kind of message will they want and so on. So they're doing political databases. They're doing legal databases on all the lawsuits because nobody in India has this kind of a searchable database, they're building it. Uh, Harvard is building a partition database, a database on the partition of India by taking every shred of evidence that is in India or Pakistan or Bangladesh or any, any of those places, that whether it's written, whether it's oral, whether it's physical, they want to pay money, buy it, scan it and create a database. The idea being that in the future, if a scholar wants to study the partition, that's the place he'll have to go. And he'll have to go get their permission and they'll grant permission or not grant permission or whatever, however they'll control, they'll be the gatekeepers of knowledge. It's like uh, if you today want to do a PhD or a dissertation on India in the British era and you want to go and look at the local tax collection, the local records and how much uh, wheat was produced or rice was produced and how much cotton was produced, uh, you know, some kind of activity or about details of the census, anything about India during that era, you have to go to London. You, these are not databases that are sitting in India, these are databases sitting in the in the, in, in UK even now. So now Harvard will become the keeper of many of these databases. And I've listed in this book several databases of pretty sensitive kind, including genetics. There is a whole mapping of Indian genes. Now Indian genes are more diverse than any other countries in the world. And there's a lot of genetic value. There's a lot of biotechnology value. It can also be put to misuse because you can make drugs which are either targeting certain genes or exempting, protecting certain genes. A drug which is a virus which, is, which will attack, but certain type of genes will be immune. So you, all of this is frontiers of science. So building a database of all the genes, wherever they are, is a very major enterprise. Americans and Chinese are the two leaders in the world, including in India, that are doing this. So I could go on, but there are, this is full of such examples. One of the shockers is that Indian billionaires are funding such work at places like Harvard. I've just picked Harvard because it's the biggest, but there are examples of Reliance. Reliance is funding uh, somebody at Stanford who's, if you read his last 20 you know, publications, he is the most anti-India, he says it's a fascist country, it's democracy is a sham, he's, a, he's against the whole Hindu culture, against the whole government. He's against all of that. And guess what is his title? His title is Reliance Dhirubhai Ambani Professor at Stanford. So they are the ones who funded it. 
Now, either they don't know, which, which case shame on them. We are telling them something they don't know. They should say, thank you. Thank you for telling us what we ought to have figured out ourselves. Or they are just in it because it's glamorous. It's uh, cool. It's good to be good to be on the board along with, you know, Eric Schmidt of, uh, you know, uh, Google fame or some, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg or some people like that. It's cool to be on the board with those kind of billionaires. And then you feel that you are famous and it's good you get your kids in Harvard. You'll get into all these committees and all these boards and you go to fancy galas and all that stuff. So either they want to do it because there's limelight and they haven't done their homework or there's some reason, something that we don't quite know. We focused on, I know of these things in many prestigious universities, but we focused on Harvard because it has the largest number of such things happening. And the, the, these things are not just done for US academic consumption. They bring a large number of people from India, train them, bring them for conferences, train them, send them back. And these are the people who then supply the media in India. Besides supplying, right, such people are being trained from Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, BBC, etc., and various think tanks in this country. They are also training people in India who are the sort of intellectual bearers of this kind of uh, discourse they're training them at harvard and we've given you all the evidence here which is why it's a big book so we picked on the following billionaires there is something called the mahindra humanities center at harvard the mahindra humanities center at harvard by anand mahindra there's a chapter just on that and anand mahindra is a nice guy i met him in his office he's a very, very decent person but on this issue, I don't know why he would fund a, such a thing where the director of this institute named after Mahindra and on the business card of this director, it says director of the Mahindra Humanities Center at Harvard. The director is a well-known postmodernist, one of the top three or four postmodernists in the world whose life work, whose thesis is that the nation state like India is, a, is, a, is an abusive structure. I mean, that's as basic as it gets. That's the whole position these guys have been promoting. So then there is uh, another chapter we have on uh, Lakshmi, Mittal and Family, uh, South Asia Institute at Harvard. It's called Lakshmi, Mittal and Family. So you can't say why are you, uh, one of the publishers who didn't want to publish this book said, don't name them. Don't name them, then we can publish it. So I said, but they're naming themselves. You go to the website, it says, it says on the website, there's a big banner, it says Lakshmi, Mittal and Family, South Asia Institute. And, and they're having conference after conference after conference and all these type of people are coming and speaking and saying all this spewing uh, stuff against India and against my culture. But it, their name is, they are, they are very proud of it. So why, what's secret about it? There's nothing secret we're telling you. And then there is the Piramal Center for Public Health. This Piramal Center for Public Health is very interesting. The Chinese infiltrated Harvard in a very big way, but they did it differently. They did not give money to embarrass China, but the opposite. So when the Chinese have done a chair or a center at Harvard, that money and that chair is never allowed to talk about the Tibetan movement, the Uyghur movement, the freedom movement in Hong Kong, the problem in Taiwan, any of the problems about democracy or politics. Total silence. Harvard better not open their mouth because China has made very clear we didn't give you money for you to judge us. We know ourselves better than you do. We don't want to learn about history from you, philosophy from you, political science from you. 
The reason we are giving money to Harvard is to get STEM knowledge, intellectual property. We want to get science, technology, medicine, engineering. They're very smart. They give money where it's useful to them. We give money. They're Chinese students and Indian students coming to a place like Harvard. We've done a survey. India has brings a large number of large percent of students who come and study South Asia. They want to study religions of India as if Harvard is a place to study all this, you know, rather than your own country. And they come and study, you know, uh, human rights in India. Chinese send students to study engineering, physics, you know, quantum computing, artificial intelligence. Very smart guys. They so I would say Anand Mahindra, being in, an, in the automobile industry should be funding things of engineering which he can use and also that is something he can evaluate he cannot evaluate postmodernism i don't know if, if he knows anything about postmodernism if it is just some fashionable thing to put your millions of dollars i don't think lakshmi mittal should have any has any i mean it is his money and i respect he can spend however he want there's nothing illegal about it but i don't think he knows how to evaluate the whole discourse on south asia and its history and partition and what happened uh, during the Mughals and whether the uh, education uh, is fair or unfair and whether some people are getting social justice or not getting social justice. I don't think it is any of his business and he does, certainly doesn't know, but he's a steel guy. And if he were to uh, do something in metallurgy or steel, that would be useful to him and he would know how to evaluate it. So our billionaires, in a, I mean, I have a whole uh, section here called Harvard Vishwaguru and Indian billionaires. And the reason I chose that term is because we think we are the Vishwaguru. All, all these Indians go around saying India is the Vishwaguru. Well, come on. Harvard is teaching you about India. They are controlling the discourse on yourself. How are you the Vishwaguru? Who made you the Vishwaguru? You just think you are. Maybe at one time we were. Maybe. But today it is not true that we are educating the world about anybody. We are not even able to control the discourse about our own history and our own culture. So this is the nature of this book. And I've given you just a little snapshot and we'll have more Q&A. I hope it's not too controversial, but it is what it is. And maybe we should move on to Vijaya. Thank you. Our uh, next uh, speaker and uh, our second author of the book is Vijaya Vishwanathan. Vijaya Vishwanathan is a mechanical engineer by training and holds an MBA from the Wharton Business School. After a successful corporate career in manufacturing and finance based in the USA, Singapore, and Europe, she turned her focus to education. As she embarked on a homeschooling journey with her children, she gained deep insights into the relevance of Indic knowledge systems in modern education. Vijaya is active in initiatives that focus on curricula, pedagogy, and mentoring. As a student under Swami Dayanand Saraswati of Arshavidya Gurukulam, Vijaya studied Vedanta as well as Dharmic and Civilization thought. Vijaya also serves on the board of Infinity Foundation. And without any further ado, let's welcome Vijaya Vishwanathan, who's going to be speaking on the telephone. Let's give her a big round of applause. Thanks to uh, Seema Singh for arranging this event. I heard that you are dynamic, your energy is infectious, and you're an action-oriented uh, superwoman. I was so looking forward to meeting you in person, but maybe another time. Another person who is very special in the audience is Indrani Malhotra, without whom Raji's work has reached the prominence that it has today. 
the uh, city of chennai where i come from is home to a very famous old shiva temple shiva in this temple is called uh, kapaleeshwara and the temple has a special sanctum for his consort uh, parvati who is karpagambal who's called karpagambal you know when a devotee enters the temple he first pays his respects and sings praises to karpagambal before entering the sanctum of kapaleeshwara in some sense there is no kapaleeshwara's glory without karpagambal's grace similarly i i would say there is no rajmalhotra's contributions to indian civilization without indrani's uh, forbearance and support so with that let me uh, i thought since this audience has uh, a good mix of uh, the malhotra's friends and people that are close to them who have been in their lives for the past few decades i thought i would give it uh, give this uh, brief talk uh, a different spin i have uh, personally learned a lot from rajiv and i don't say this in a perfunctory way kshatriyata is uh, is a is like a game of chess for rajiv he thinks many steps ahead anticipates the uh, opposition's uh, moves and is fierce in his game as you probably know his books are always at least a decade or a few decades ahead of their time i remember we had an appointment uh, with the prime minister a few years ago we were and you know we were waiting after all the security check uh, we were waiting at the reception and here was rajiv talking about a grand vision uh, of uh, of possible future directions the world could take he was essentially talking about uh, some of the unknown unknowns in great detail when our discussion was interrupted by modi ji secretary saying the pm was ready for us what i want to say is that even you know if rajiv is meeting the pm he is his own person he has no agenda he is not under pressure he is just being himself and what i most respect about uh, rajiv is that no amount of money uh, no person in power or anything in this world can sway his thought process and this helps him stay true to his uh, dharma of course he's a taskmaster and can also be a pain sometimes uh i can be a huge pain sometimes uh, uh rajiv will, will never summarily dismiss uh, disagreements he will argue it out till the cows come home and will and will and till you turn blue in the face he will you know argue things out but he's also willing to change his mind if you can logically show him a different trajectory so fundamentally he is a great problem solver he loves problems problems that have a huge impact uh, he always um, you know he loves it he loves them because he can he can get to solve them uh, even his opponents will grudgingly agree that his ideas are strong most well thought out and and thorough so uh, for those of you in the audience who have had him as a friend let me tell you that you've had the most brilliant problem solver amongst you and i hope you have availed of this resource to enrich your life but if you haven't it isn't too late um many of you probably think like rajiv mentioned that he is too controversial 
and he could be spending his life doing uh, charitable work that is non controversial like uh, like raji mentioned you know providing food for the hungry and healthcare and education you know the services part of philanthropy that is non controversial uh, uh, but you need you need hundreds of millions of dollars to make a difference when you embark on some of these non controversial kind of work essentially you need scale to make a difference and there are enough people doing that as well uh if a person wants to use his brains especially someone with rajiv's capacity uh then how does he do it uh, that you know, how does he work in philanthropy that that has an impact so as i have said rajiv has a brilliant mind and if uh, he were to make a difference using his mind then the way to make an impact is through changing the existing discourse uh, which will then change policy um, and it will change how people think how you and i think and and more importantly how the future generation thinks if uh, somebody could change people's attitude towards something this could change the whole of society and changing people's thinking has a very high leverage and has a huge impact as you all well know and i'll give you some examples as well um it is not the same thing as feeding people it brings about uh, a sea change in in humanity as a whole since the reward for this kind of work is uh, is very high it ends up being controversial by its very nature so you should not be surprised uh, even when seema uh, introduced uh, this book she said it's a controversial book um so history is full of you know controversial people who changed society and thinking and they were con- controversial they, they were considered controversial then but we consider them great now you know jesus christ was uh, so controversial that the romans wanted to kill him uh, he was not armed but his speech his ideas thoughts were considered controversial at the time uh, take any field um, if you take galileo he was considered uh, controversial the buddha was controversial adi shankaracharya was uh, controversial shankaracharya toppled the entire power structure of knowledge of his time einstein was controversial when he poked holes in newtonian physics so anything great um uh that you see today is you know came out of controversy <laughs> so controversy means challenging the prevailing um uh, you know consensus of the thought leaders uh this is how uh, innovation happens so it takes uh, guts uh, rajiv is known for his guts it takes the ability to take a risk um, it takes endurance and grit uh, toughness and most of all it takes uh, brains and it takes someone like rajiv to put all of that together um so uh, one example is how rajiv single handedly stopped the uh, establishment of the adi shankara chair at columbia university uh, please read the uh, battle for sanskrit for those who are unfamiliar with this uh, with this subject if rajiv had not taken on this controversy we would have uh, had a dozen adi shankara chairs run by people who are anti sanskrit anti sanskriti controlling the discourse against dharma and our culture marxists would be teaching the next generation of uh, sanskrit scholars and we owe it to rajiv for changing this legacy single handedly yeah so 
as you well know if uh, you know there are financial mar- if this was the financial markets and a contrarian thinker like Ra- rajiv would have been uh, rewarded in a huge way but it is not rajiv that benefits from such victories you and i and our future generations stand to benefit when rajiv is uh, you know with rajiv's victory uh, in uh, in such matters next is the uh, hindu phobia is another great example very few people would even acknowledge that there is a problem of hindu phobia because they are either too scared uh, they don't have the knowledge they don't know how to uh, grapple with the problem it took someone like rajiv to leave his whole career and devote his whole life to understand what is this phenomenon and how to articulate it and educate other people the result is evident in this you know very hall uh, i'm sure i i just saw rajiv sent me um, a little video uh, clipping and i saw nikunj sitting uh, standing there uh, so uh, people like uh, nikunj uh, in the audience are building organizations to help your kids grandkids challenge hindu phobia on college campuses and in the workplace there's a huge movement with thousands of people who are all concerned about this very issue rajiv in fact coined the term hindu phobia as it is being practiced today in society he noticed a pattern of hindu phobia he was then able to articulate it he then figured out what are the algorithms by which hindu phobia operates and then came up with counter algorithms to challenge it so what starts out as controversy is often the thing that ends up as a revolution and now you see so many young hindus uh, even in radgaud's uh, university um, who are awakened uh, by this kind of work uh, while the rest of hindu society lies sleeping with their fingers crossed rajiv is the night watchman that ensures our civilizational um, lens survives for the future for our kids and our and our gra- grandkids so if you read our book the snakes in the ganga you will understand that the Uh, you know time for hiding behind uh, neutrality is over uh, the 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 woke has gone so far uh, that if you are silent um, the woke left assumes that you are complicit the woke mob gives you two choices either you um, you become active and commit to their cause as an ally or you are their enemy even if you don't say or do anything so your very silence incriminates you so you are forced to make a choice so if you want change controversy is something that is part of the package even within your families you will probably find that the members that take leadership and want to make change to the status quo thinking are not popular and are con- and will be considered uh, controversial so i'll close quickly by saying that uh, today as you bid farewell to the malhotras with hugs perhaps uh, i urge you to also embrace the controversy that you think rajiv represents it is time for all of us to stick our necks out and take on the burden and not just let one man do all the fighting for the rest of us thank you so much namaste a big round of applause for our two esteemed authors i'd like to invite anil bansal uh, to say a few words this event could not have been possible without his support he's always been a great supporter of anything i do but for this i know he jumped even before my sentence was complete so thank you so much and by the way he's from iit kanpur so i hope you have a special interest here y- yes 
So I am I am really, really overwhelmed. I am overwhelmed because what Rajivji has brought out has personally touched me, as you know. Um, some of you who know me, uh, I have been a big supporter of India and causes to improve the lives of Indians uh, in India. Also to protect our uh, arts and culture, which is the richest of any, any civilization. And uh, I've been involved in, in the um, Asian Indian Chamber of Commerce uh, and, and, and I have to thank Seema for uh, grooming me for that position. I ran that for a, for a while and Preeti uh, took after me and now Rajiv is running it. Uh, after that, uh, I did get an opportunity to uh, be the president of FIA, which is again, uh, thanks to uncle under whose leadership, I was able to serve uh, again the Indian community and the Indian interests uh, in the diaspora here. The reason I'm telling you this is, and, and, and currently I'm very much involved with Rakesh Kaul, his leadership, um, Indo-American Arts Council, where we are doing um, a really incredible amount of work in protecting and bringing up the incredibly deep art and culture and civilizations which India has been part of. We have been ruled for a thousand years by foreign forces, which we have, they have tried to suppress that, but we have survived. We have survived. Now we have the means and the power and we should have the desire to ensure that that is brought out and to make us feel proud Indians. When Rajivji talked about in this book and I read about the IIT uh, as a bourgeois structure, which is cost and stuff, and I was like, really? I never thought of it because guess what? I'm a bunya, which according to the caste system is third from the top, you know, so, and I can tell you, IIT was dominated by Bunyans, okay? Uh, I mean, it was just incredible, you know. So for somebody to say that the Brahmins were suppressing us or there was a caste system or something, it's so foreign. Like he said, it's an unknown unknown. But there are forces which are supported by these big institutions which are trying to promote that. And that was a big wake-up call for me, and I have incredible respect and, and love for Rajivji for bringing me to that level. So when this topic came and Seema called me that uh, we would like to do this, of course, of course, anything for India, Indians, and especially in this case where there are unknown forces which are trying to destroy India, to make us feel bad as to who we are, what our race is, what our culture is, what our heritage is, and what our religion is, to destroy all that. Absolutely, we're gonna fight with that together. So I'm, I'm really grateful for all of you to taking the time and coming here tonight. <clears throat> I really, really uh, appreciate all of you, um, and, and, and please listen and think with an open mind and know what forces you're fighting for, fighting against and uh, do whatever you can 
to promote the book, work, and the idea that we, as the steward of uh, Indian civilization, who are empowered, we are in a rich nation, that we do whatever we can so our kids, our generations after us can benefit from this. So again, thank you very much for coming tonight. And I really want to thank Ankur for coming and supporting because he did a lot of work in uh, ensuring that this, this got the widest audience in, in here. So thank you. I would just say that uh, Rajiji is now from unknown, from unknown to known known. And I think uh, now our job will be to make him worldwide known. But this kind of monumental work needs like monumental support. And I feel that uh, we need to take uh, this message further. And I will really appreciate if uh, all of us plus more will show up on January 29th. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rajivji. It's always a pleasure to have you, um, you know, give us all the insights. Every time I come here, I learn so much. Uh, I just want to say that Rajivji has been a huge influence on my personal life as well as the lives of many Hindus who have either been born and raised here or raised here. And I don't consider him controversial, I consider him the disruptor. Because what happens is the, the, the other side continues to launch lots of Shastras onto us, okay? And we are basically sitting here with our back turned uh, and just taking it. There's one Yodha who fires the back and that's Rajivji. For the past 25 years of my life, I've known this man. And every time I, you know, I learn something new. So this Snakes in the Ganga book, I highly recommend everyone to read it because it contains vocabulary that 99% of the people don't know. And most of your kids know. So when you are going to be challenged about critical race theory or wokeism, you have no idea what that means if you don't read this book. And once you read this book, you will understand the vast challenge that is ahead of us, especially for the young generation who are becoming deracinated and shameful to call themselves Hindu and part of the great civilization that we are. And I have worked with hundreds of them throughout the years. I stand here because of that. And I'm really thankful for Rajivji as well as FIA to organize this event. Namaste. Uh, first of all, congratulations to uh, Rajiv for coming out with this book. I've known him for a decade plus now. Um, this um, issue is um, of, of um, the breaking India forces is, uh, is a critical issue for our own survival here. And uh, Rajivji, uh, he reminds me of... Uh, uh, Lord Hanuman, because Hanuman is is a symbol of bravery, and uh, that's what we need to rekindle in ourselves: a sense of bravery to face the truth uh, for our own preservation. Thank you, Rajivji. You've been a, a beacon for many people for many many years. I've seen you, and your ideology was way on perfect. Not now, 35 years ago, also. So all I can tell you is. A proud Hindu and an American and an Indian needs to understand your ideology from the beginning because once they get it, they will understand how proud we are to have you amongst us. It's an honor to know you. I'm going to start, kickstart the question. So, um, Rajiv, 
I know you have funded a lot of these big Harvard, Columbia, and other Ivy Leagues, giving them millions of dollars. Is that correct? So why did you now stop? You know, I started by giving people the benefit of doubt. So many people show up at the American Academy of Religion conference every year, about 12,000, 13,000 people. They're scholars of world religions and they're organized into different units. There's a Hinduism unit, Buddhism unit, all these different units, South Asia unit, there's a unit on religions and human rights and all kinds of themes. And I used to go there and audit and I found that the origin of textbook bias comes from there, from the academic world. The origin of TV bias, media bias, which was very strong, which still is strong, comes from there because the academic people train the journalists. They go to places like, you know, Columbia School of Journalism or the Newman School of uh, Media at Harvard and they learn all these things. Uh, I learned that uh, politicians, think tanks, all these people at Brookings and all these famous uh, think tanks, they are populated by people from places like Harvard. So I decided that by giving money to Harvard, I'll change the root of the problem. I did this for 10 years. I gave several million dollars, but there was a difference between me and the typical donor. The typical donor writes, wants to write a check, get his picture taken. The dean will write you a letter and you'll be very famous. You send it to your hometown people. They'll say, wow, this guy has made it. So basically it's to feel good about, hey, you know, I'm doing all this work. I didn't want to do that. I'm a very hands-on type person. Even in my business, I used to hands-on and write code and write all that stuff. I, I just enjoy tinkering with ideas. So when I would give grants for a conference and we'd give grants for professors to write books, for people to do dissertations, we did this for many years in many universities. I wanted to read all this stuff I, because I'm also a learned scholar. I have gurus. I have people teaching me. I wanted to do this. So I would go back and argue. And I found often they hadn't thought through things and they were more into a consensus of uh, like-minded people and not really very good at answering questions. In science, you learn that you can question. In business, you learn nobody is going to take your word for it. You have to argue your case. The marketplace will decide if your thing is full of bugs, it's full of bugs. You, people, you have to face the reality. But I found that in the liberal arts, in the humanities, there's no real proof, no objective proof. It's all a matter of opinion and the people in power, their consensus, their ideology, their bias seems to be prevailing. So I, it really upset me. So I started opposing from the audience. So if there would be a PhD defense going on in one of these universities that we funded, when the defense is going on, public is invited. So I would sit there and I would argue. I would argue at conferences on Indology for three, four years in a row, we've sponsored the Harvard Indology Conference which is now the Mittal South Asia Studies Conference. Same thing, they renamed it. We used to sponsor it. I was the only Indian at that time, I'm talking about 30 years ago, sponsoring the Ivy Leagues in the United States for Indian civilization, Indian history, Indian culture, and et cetera, et cetera. There was no other person. In fact, there was one uh, Hinduja. The Hinduja Foundation was also sponsoring similar things. So we were there at that time, and they, then they stopped doing it. So after sponsoring for so many years, I found that they would they try to buy me out. In fact, uh, uh, Laurie Patton, who was uh, Wendy Doniger's top student in those days at University of Chicago, who later became a dean at Duke and very famous person in the field of really comparative religion. She told me once, 
He said, you know, if you if you just stop criticizing the work we do, you will be one of the most important people we can build up. They actually thought they'll build me up and I'll go for it because I'll become a big, big shot and I'll be going and doing the uh, inauguration of all the conferences and I'll be well known in the American Academy of Religion and all these famous places. They thought that buying, feeding my ego will be good for me. And I said, that's not what I want because I already had that in my business. I had more money than uh, you guys could ever give me I gave that up I had that glamour I gave up the glamour because I want to do something substantial so you're not going to buy me out so they this created a kind of a tension between us and soon I became an opponent of this the instead of being a donor and funding them I became an opponent and that's when I decided that you know what if you're trained in science you're trained in logic you're trained in business you're a, you're an analytical mind you can figure this out. This is not anything, any rocket science. Anyone sitting in this room, our people are very intelligent people. Our Indian people are very, extremely intelligent people. I said this in the Bay Area. They said, what's the secret to all this scholarship you're doing? And I said, anyone sitting in this room among you, if you decide that you'll stop everything you're doing and put your mind on this, you'll become better than most of these scholars because you have the brains. And you have the brains to be very good. So it's just, a, it's just a matter that our people don't have that priority. So I decided that I'm going to switch and start doing this work myself. And now I'm training an army of uh, scholars to replace me when I'm gone because it shouldn't just fall apart. We have 10 people on the payroll full time in India, three in the United States. We need to get more. And what I'm doing is coaching them, working with them so that some of them will become my co-authors. Some of them will become research assistants. And then gradually I'll turn them into scholars so that we'll have a next generation a team of good quality scholars because this work has to go on for a hundred years. So, so I'm not sure if I remember this correctly, but I know there was a spiritual guide that made you give up all this wealth that you had and give back to society. So let us hear a little bit about that. So, you know, I have generally been silent about my own autobiography before this uh, 30 years. My life can be divided into two halves. The first 20, 25 years after I graduated was for profit, business, corporate, you know, entrepreneur, all that in tech. And then the last 30 years is giving back. Uh, and so the transformation was very sudden and the transformation was a multiplicity of factors. I, I was a type A person running around, you know, any day could have a heart attack or get kidnapped. I was in going into countries like Ukraine in those days, those days and Russia and Yugoslavia before it broke up and Korea and China. One of our guys was arrested. Another guy was kidnapped. All these things happening in the I'm talking about the wild frontier days after the Berlin Wall fell in the early 90s. That's when I was going to these frontier countries, setting up, you know, tech well ahead of its time well ahead of the uh, uh, nowadays it's all established stuff but when you go early and you take your risk you can also make a lot of money so we were very good at that in the late 80s till uh, 90s and all so i had uh, i had these moments when several things were happening one is too many problems facing you know too many crises taipei running around working seven days a week in different time zones and also not satisfied at the end of the day that all this money coming in, uh, what is it for? Uh, because I've always 
my guru always said, you must have enough, but not more than enough. You need to have enough. Make sure you have enough, but you don't need more than enough. So I felt that now what else should I be doing? And at some point, a combination of many things happened. And I had a huge experience with my guru in Mumbai. Uh, but the guru is uh, not somebody with a, who wanted to have a brand name, wanted, didn't want that. Uh, so this is not one of those big name guru types that are well known. Uh, the story of the guru is that, you know, I I'd studied Vedanta as a child. I'd read a lot. I, my parents took me to Ramakrishna Mission. My parents, we, we studied with Chinmay, Swami Chinmayan and personally we took, we knew him well. So I had a grounding in Vedanta. I also have an Arya Samaj background from my mother's side. And so we do these havans and I also have a bhakti, my, you know, a lot of bhakti in our tradition. So I had all the building blocks, but I was sort of putting it off saying, okay, you know, first I'll make my money, you know, then we'll think about it. And so then when I would go back to India, my uh, sister-in-law uh, would had a guru and she would say that, you know, you should go meet this guru. And I would say, well, what is the guru going to tell me? And she would say these, these things. And I would say, but I already know that it's already in the Gita, it's standard stuff. Tell the guru, they're right. No problem. So I was kind of a bit arrogant and presumptuous. Then one day in one of my visits, uh, the, my, I was told by her family that, you know, Guru is in town, you should meet, wants to meet you. So I went there and sat in the back and heard the whole satsang and came back. And then they said, what do you think? I said, well, Guru is right, but you know, it's nothing new. So they said, this Guru has said, that this guy one day will come back and become very important and will transform. But right now he's not ready for it. So don't try to convince him. This is what they told me. And I said, okay, then just leave me alone. So that's how I was. But then when later on, I faced a whole lot of uh, challenges in my life, my business, my health, uh, things falling, things uh, Unlimited amount of money coming in for a small, small uh, middle class guy like me, not by today's standards, you guys have made tons of money. But for me, that was a lot because I came from humble backgrounds and I felt that, okay, I got enough. So a combination of all these led me back to the guru. And this is when I was ready, I guess. So I had some profound experiences that changed my value system, my outlook. People didn't believe it. When I told people at work that I'm going to just give this up, they thought this is a, he's just pulling a fast one. When I, even after I left these businesses, the, uh, I would keep getting offers, join this board and get into this venture. And we want you here, there. And I would say, no, people would think that, uh, you know, he's dreaming some secret venture, new venture, and he doesn't want to tell us. So he's all this spiritual stuff is just a front. So this is how it happened. And so I never look back. I never look back. I keep wondering, you know, sometimes people ask me, there are people who say you should have continued making the money. Then you'd be one of those billionaires and then you'd start a big university and then you would not be looking for funding and you would have your own. Well, that is true, but I would not be enriched. I would not be enriched for 30 years, my own enrichment. So ultimately, the, ultimately, it's about one's own svadharma, which means my dharma, my calling, my, my purpose. And the idea of that I can help others is fine if they don't want to, if the IIT Vailas don't want to be helped, fine. You know, I've done my calling. In other words, I've done the best I could. 
and then bhagwan decides whatever the outcome is that's my swadharma so i i am basically being uh, i'm learning i'm trying to do a better job at it i am from a kshatriya type of mentality my mother who just passed away she was 95 was a very solid kshatriya a medical doctor but really powerful and she raised us to be strong to stand on our feet to talk argue back fight back hang on to our rights so we we are punjabis are kshatriya type people you know we like to put up a good fight and so this is this is kshatriyata in an intellectual sense so we call it intellectual kshatriya so that's what i'm trying to do and uh, the only thing you take with you is your karma that's it you don't take your money with you you don't take your goodwill it's not how many people liked you and how many events happened and how famous you are and all of that none of that is not what your kids think of you it's not what your kids how good your kids are and how many fancy vacations they're going to and how many you know resort uh, resorts you own and all that stuff none of that will matter it is your karma your sanskar and therefore my calling is and what i'd love to share with people is if you invest if you invest in things that are higher than your own ego then you but make sure that you have enough for for to look after yourself you don't need more than enough then invest in things that are higher than your ego that is the ultimate yagna of giving back to our culture our civilization because that's where we got everything from and it is only fair that we should give it back and if you take on the tough fights which very few people will do that's even better because those are the fights that are more important since not too many people are willing to take that kind of a risk reward thing so that's my uh, i usually don't talk much about myself but this is seema when she asks a question i give an answer <laughs> so being connected to a guru myself and a few of us here um i do believe in your profound experiences and why there's no looking back and really proud of you and his generosity speaks for itself you know we've seen it personally and professionally all around so thank you so much um i'm going to open it up to the audience when the change of government happened in 2014 i was hoping that uh, the work you were doing gets more promoted more and in fact i was hoping you would be the part of the cabinet or something like that or policy making how is it going with the new government from 2014 in india well you know i uh, people think i'm some kind of uh, modi or bjp guy but i actually am i like to be independent so i can criticize it, being critical is part of my nature i cannot help that and so i cannot be part of an institution uh, I, because then i'm supposed to toe the line i i cannot be part of an institution i have to be an independent thinker i like a lot of things they're doing but i also have serious problems with some of the things because they need to do a lot more by now so i this book out of after so many books they've all received attention from the government from the rss from the bjp i've met all these guy ministers all that uh, but i would say that this book of all the ones i've written uh, achieved a huge amount of traction in fact people who are not out in the public but behind the scenes the real movers and shakers in terms of policy and national security and all that wanted to have multiple meetings which i did and i i i have good feelings that they will take some of these action items mentioned in the book seriously because they realize that these are real threats we face 
And not only we pointed out the threats, we've told them exactly where they need to go. For example, I'll tell you one pressure point is the prime minister or somebody on his behalf should pick up the phone and call some of these billionaires and say, what is the reason you're funding people halfway around the world to do all this anti-India stuff? What's the reason? What do you get out of it? What's your game plan? Tell us. I mean, if you are ideologically aligned with that, tell the public. Why Why do we, the public idolizes you as Desh Bhakts and we give you Padma Vibhushan, all those kind of awards. But if outside India you're funding all of this stuff, people should know the duplicity. But if there is something, some real reason for doing it, tell us. But if, if you are being fooled by the Harvards of the world, then you should be advised to change your course. So this kind of pressure is happening. It will happen. Because the public is now quite ticked off at some of these things uh, and public wants some accountability. So I'm just giving you one example. I also think this whole Omidyar network and that's just one example of several, which has gone and invested $500 million. They've got a few thousand young tech people in India on board and they're brainwashing them and they're giving them certain ideology, social political ideology and collecting all these big data for artificial intelligence and building algorithms on predicting the behavior of Indians and then they're funding projects to change the behavior of Indians. They're funding projects at uh, Ashoka University and places like that uh, with the purpose of experimenting how to change Indian behavior through uh, these digital uh, interventions. So this is all very dangerous stuff. Uh, this means that somebody sitting in a foreign country can push the button and decide what will happen in India. So I think the, the, the people there are waking up and uh, the, this book is one more push in that direction. But I'm, uh, I'm in a hurry and it's not good and fast enough for me. Hi, uh, my name is um, Priti Pandya Patel. So I wasn't, I actually didn't know what to expect, like with the title. I was really thinking it was going to be something that you're going to talk about, the corruption in India and the government. But you really opened my eyes because some, I'm... Some, some people told me that uh, the title thinks they think it's some kind of tourism book about snakes. <laughs> so I'm a second generation um, Indian, right? And um, I'm actually thinking now my kids are older, they're adults, but I'm thinking about my grandkids. Uh, growing up here, I've been here since uh, 1972, and we've had so many problems uh, being Hindu, being Indian, you know, dot busters, if everybody remembers that um, in the 80s. I went through this. I went through all of this. And I, after listening to you, I just feel like we're going backwards. Uh, and uh, I'm thinking, what else can we do? Uh, do you have a plan of action? I mean, you're saying you have all these people in India, but I think you really need to have some people here and a big team and an organization. So I just want to see what your solution is. So, you found you know, the problems. So, you know, the thing is, uh, we have a whole lot more ideas than we have resources and funding to carry out. So what we need is help to implement. I personally don't need any help for myself. I'm taken care of. But if we want to make an institution and leave and have, have teams of people that are carrying these things forward, we need to hire them. We need funding. So we do have, if you are interested, I have a list of 11 projects. Somebody in the Bay Area wanted to know what, if there were funds available, what would we do? So we have a list of 11 projects. If anybody's interested, contact me later and I'll send you the list and you can get involved in anything you want.
So uh, just give you some examples. Uh, this big book we're going to produce, we're going to make five or six small books out of it. Uh, one of them will be on the IIT attack, 100 page book. So, and that we will want to spend 30, 40,000 copies, paperback, and spread them around the tech people, young tech people in India. They should know it's their future, it's their career. And this is under attack. What to expect when you go to another country or what, what kind of HR laws might come even in India in the tech sector. So to educate people, this big book is like the resource guide. It's like a toolkit, but we want to make little small books. And so we have a project to do that. We also have a project to turn all my nine books into Hindi and Gujarati and Tamil. We have projects to make videos, uh, make documentaries out of it. Uh, we want to turn this into e-learning so people who don't want to read can watch, can go online and learn. So we have many, many things of that sort. We want to do little 10-page booklets on small, small points. So somebody who, whose attention span is limited can just read a little bit and get something out of it. We want to bring this knowledge down into the textbook, school textbook level. So the number of projects and ambition and ideas is huge. It's, it's a matter of resources. And so if people who are just giving us opinions and ideas, we'll tell them that thank you so much, but there's nothing we can do about it. But those who want to really help us with resources, please contact us and we'd love to hear from you. We are listening to the fire here. I would like to no, how to counteract it? So, so the choir, we are preaching to the choir, but the choir is not necessarily putting their money where their mouth is. They're a choir who come for a nice dinner and clap and say, but so I just want to find out you are New Jersey people. I've lived here for 30 years. I have 1200 videos on my video channel. I'm giving a hundred events a year. I'm not a secret, I'm very well known. Okay, how many of you have even come to these events? Maybe a, five, a few of you. How many of you who know me very well even bought, bothered to buy a book which costs $20? And let me give you very honestly, each book costs us between 100,000 and $500,000 cost to produce because of the research, because of the teams that go into it. This latest book cost us $500,000 to put it out the door. And just because some people stupidly think that we make money selling the books. Let me tell you, let me ask for a show of hands. How many of you think we make money selling this book? How many of you think? Well, I probably scared you, so you're not showing your hand. Wait, wait. How many of you think it's a break even? Okay. So let me tell you the real facts. Because the publisher, the publisher told us that uh, it'll be the MRP, the retail value will be 2000 rupees. And I said, nobody will buy it in India. Students can't buy more than 500, but let's say 895 is the maximum. They said the four, five times the print cost is the retail price in India. I checked and that's true. Because if your if your printing costs say were twenty rupees, they sell it for hundred because the distributor takes sixty percent. You know, so much goes discount. Amazon takes a lot of percent. Retailer takes percent. So it has to be five times the print cost. And this is the, if the print cost is uh, four hundred rupees because it's imported paper, it's a big book, a lot of very expensive proper binding and all very high quality production. It's four hundred uh, rupees by uh, Thomson Press, which is the best press in India. Then, you know, four times, five times that is 2000. So I and he said, if you want to bring it down to 900, 
then you've subsidized it 1100 rupees so i said i have a better idea i will subsidize the printing cost from 400 to 200 by paying them 200 and five times that will be 1000 so i i i i you you assume the print cost is 200 instead of 400 because i'll pay half the invoice you pay half the invoice so as far as you're concerned the printing cost is 200 so if if it has to be five times that it should cost 1000 and we negotiated now down to 895 and we pay to just we pay a subsidy for every every book you buy we lose money we don't get royalty forget that we're putting money into it besides that we've got a few large number of copies to give away to poor people we go to when we go to these small towns they are really interested some of the very scholarly people are poor this is very true you think that all kind of people in india have money but a book of 895 is a deterrent for students students there's a block blockage we've tested you price it at 200 lot more students will buy so we give money away we give books away we give seminars away uh, so all of these things cost money and the question is not that we are choir but the choir is just sitting passively watching a cricket game through looking at binoculars you have to go there into the khela into the kurukshetra you have to become a player yourself that is what we need and not passive choir dr gupta you have really asked a very valid question and i want to tell you what i have done and i hope at least some of you would do that i have bought a whole bunch of books okay to give away to my family and friends which i've already started okay uh, seema will tell you i had obtained it before that's number 1 so so what happens is this spreads that is that is one way you can help and it's a very easy way. You give out gifts on Christmas or whatever it is, Diwali, whatever. This is the way to spread uh, the thing. And uh, easiest way, very important place, you can donate this to library or wherever you find a library. Please go there and give them a brand new book and they'll be happy to put it up. So that's how you can help on a very small scale. Thank you. This is very good. Thank you. I'll request people just to ask questions, not to be giving comments. Just ask a quick question because we are running out of time. So you want to take it? My name is Jyotsna Sharma and I'm from ITV Gold. Sir, my question is regarding the youth. I understand, uh, I mean, you are building a team and you want to live this legacy for next 100 years. The youth who are in America, the Indian American kids, and as well as in India, how are you trying to reach out to them to spread the message? This book is huge. They are more passionate on social media. Is there any intent to create some reels or TikTok small videos to inspire or say create curiosity in them? And I'm talking about practical solutions. Yeah. So first of all, there is good news. The good news is that, you know, I have a lot of social media following. And 70% or more are people under 35, my following, 70% of them. A large number of them in Bangalore, that's the number one in the world. Then two or three other states, there is Hyderabad, there is Bombay, Pune, Delhi is not in the first top four or five. Then you come to, then it's very interesting, there are, and these are young people. You find them in the Middle East, like UAE kind of place. You find them in Singapore, Hong Kong, a lot of them in Britain. 
and in the US, California is a huge, Toronto in uh, Canada. So the idea is, you know, we, we would like to be able to hire a full-time person, a full-time person who will basically manage the local chapters. We used to have local chapters, but it takes a full-time job. If I were to do it, then I won't do my job. If we had a full-time person, somebody were to say, okay, I'm going to sponsor a full-time salary for five years. We will get, we have people who are willing to jump in, do it full-time. We will have about 20 chapters running like that. And then I can coach them, mentor them, give them work to do. They all want to be uh, part of an organization, but somebody has to guide them. And you do need a, uh, you do need a ground game with a leader who's managing these volunteers. And, and they are youth volunteers. But in the absence of that, we have a small scale game. We have a, a lady in Bangalore who's managing a few dozen volunteers. They're extremely active on things like they make for every video like this video will be a two hour, three hour long. And they'll make, make little snippets, they translate it into languages. They'll put it up in various places with their own groups, with their own WhatsApp groups. So small scale spreading of the message has been going on, which is why we have produced people like Nikunj who started Kona. And there are 50 other organizations that have started because of our work. But we have, we would love to scale it and we need resources. Uh, many thanks for the talk. My name is uh, Rajaram and I found your work very inspiring. Some time ago, I saw the movie Kashmir Files. That was, uh, that was so revealing. What's your, what's your question for me? Why don't we produce a movie out of this? So we are uh, producing a movie called Harvard Files. Second question. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. No second question. No, no. It's not just for claps. If there are people who want to fund it, I, I'm not a filmmaker, but I'll be making it. I'll be the main uh, narrator. We have got a lot of footage. Lot of footage. This will be, this will really erupt in a big way. And, and, uh, and we would like some funding. Since you are doing this humanitarian work, the cost of the book should not matter. It should be given as many possible as to people. Because this is the humanitarian work which you are doing. And Thank my you. compliments to Thank you, you we and will, to this lady. We, we will, Thank you. We will, uh, we will give this book to everybody free and send you the bill. Send you the invoice. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Malhotra. I, I, you know, I'm illuminated by your talk today and the last event as well. Uh, one thing, what would you do to mobilize this in colleges for youth? And I want to jump on the same question that she had. So uh, colleges, uh, we are turning this into, a, you know, there is something, there is something uh, uh, attacking Hinduism. There is something they came out with called toolkit. That the word toolkit is very popular. It's a toolkit on how to bring Hindus down, how to embarrass them, what are the talking points, uh, what, are the, uh, what are the vulnerabilities, you know, and, and the toolkit became a very powerful weapon in, on campuses because our people are, are, are unprepared. The parents never told them anything. Gurus are avoiding these issues. They don't want to get into controversy. So students, when they face this kind of an organized attack by opponents, they don't know what to do. So they deny their Hindu identity and so on. So we are going to turn this into a Hindu toolkit to educate our people how to talk back, 
what are the most important, most common five or 10 lines of attack which our people face? And for each of them, how to rebuttal, how to quote facts, and how to take the, the, the debate onto the opposing, opposing side. So we need to coach. What do you think, or what are your thoughts on the real intent behind this malice that's being spread by all these uh, Harvards of the world? Excellent question. So you see, this is a issue. Uh, this there is a there are multiple levels. As an as an intellectual level, there is an intellectual clash of civilizations. It's not just ours. I mean, there's a clash between the American left and the American right. It's an ideological clash. There's a clash between uh, Islam and Christianity. That's an ideological clash. So the clash of different metaphysics has been going on because everybody wants more market share. Everybody wants to expand. And if you can convert more people to your religion in India, you'll have a footprint. Those people will vote for you. and You'll have a political base. If Nagaland and many other of those states become all Christian, some of them are, then you have a political advantage. Those people vote for you. The local bishop will tell them where to vote. Similarly, if they convert to a certain to Islam, the madrasa will tell them, the imam will tell them where to vote. So with conversion comes political vote bank. With political vote bank comes power. With power, you can, it's like a form of colonization. So this is a long game. We, our people don't know the long game because we are not expansionists. We don't know how the game is being played. Those... You cannot, in sports... If your team does not have good offense, then the defense doesn't even know how to practice, practice because they don't even know what, how the offense is. Only when you know offense, you can read the psychology of the other guy. Why is he doing this? What is his game? How is he playing? Only then you can understand his offense because you also know how to do offense. And only when you understand the offense, you can, play, you can counter it. So we have this problem of being a kind of a very passive, defensive, self, you know, we have self-contented people, and therefore we don't understand these problems. But this is a this is a story of civilization which has been there. Why were the Romans at war with the Greeks? Why they were at war? Why were the the the, the when, when the Roman emperor converted to Judaism, I mean to Christianity, Emperor Constantine? Why did he go around converting all these pagans and all these people over? What was his problem? Why did he have to do that? So that, that to understand that, you've got to understand the history of civilizations, the history of human ego, collective ego, how it works. That's one level of answer. That's an ideological. But it's more practical than that. It's more pragmatic than that. The wokeism movement is a very pragmatic movement. There are institutions which, uh, which have a vested interest. We've mentioned them, named them here. They have invested in it. And so there is, there are, there are games to win, and we are the in the crosshair. We are the biggest target, unfortunately. In fact, people people here may not realize this: the biggest target of wokeism in the world is India right now. It's bigger than the United States because India is vulnerable. United States, you have pushback. Your people will push back, give it back to them. Or in India, we're not so prepared. So why? And then there's another level at which I can discuss. If you read the conclusion. If you read the conclusion, we tell you our scenario of what, where all this is going. And question I will want to leave with you. We don't have time because uh, uh, Seema says we run out of time. One so, last one. one last, so. Uh, but, so I will leave a question. Why is it that the big, the capitalists make their money through free, free market, right? Uh, Jeff Bezos made his money as a capitalist. 
why is he wokeist why is he supporting those guys why is why is facebook supporting the global left when zuckerberg made his own money as a capitalist and the left want to undermine capitalism so why would the richest people like why would mithal and you know all these guys mahindra indians and americans and all these ultra wealthy why would they support the global left when ideologically those people are out to get you why that's an important question and once you understand the answer to that question which is contained in the conclusion of this book and the role of the world economic forum and the role of the harvard kennedy school in that is explained once you understand that you will know what is our theory on what's the big game going on what is the big game going on that's what's in the conclusion so if you read nothing else just read the conclusion now it's the time for thank yous because this is event would not have been possible without our sponsors and supporters so again fia anil bansal thank you so much and for all our other sponsors uh, jagdish talreja ji thank you so much anand joshi uh, anil bansal again uh, arko mukherjee ashish kapoor bish muzamdar jeet ranjan pam kathuria rahul walia raman kapoor uh, renu khollar and mr vibhuti jha thank you very much for all your support i'd like to call upon sujal parekh ji to uh, say a few words of thanks thank you sumaji on behalf of federation of indian association we thank you all of you first of all thank you anil bhai for being a the great pride of fia to bring this event to fia thank you rajiv ji for your inspiration i think among all of us our young and dynamic leader of fia chairman ankur vaidya who reads a lot of books and who has a lot of uh, knowledge of spreading the words of books so i would like to give him a one minute to say about his intuition for this book as well thank you seema ji and thank you all uh, we've done a 600 plus people event in boston for amalhotra sir and i think it was an honor and a pleasure to hear him thank you i do want to say that the event they did in boston was one of the finest thank you so much and this is the wonderful crowd thank you very much from all of you from the federation of indian association all the media partners thank you last but not the least don't go yet so i've done many many events in my past life and no event ends without bringing rahul walia on the stage to sort of promote the book a little bit more rahul come on okay yeah okay thank you seema and eye opening i had not read the book i didn't know what to expect and i'm sure there are a bunch of people in the choir that also had a lot that was revealed to them seema asked me to come here to promote the book and to create some sort of a raffle seema with your permission i want to change that a little bit i think that before you head to the dinner table everyone should buy one copy at least i don't want to give it away i don't want to do a raffle i think what we have heard today what we have felt and as dharmic hindus it is our duty to support the work that as nikun said one yodha is started this work cannot be completed by one person 
everyone has to come together whether it is our generation or the next so instead of like he said sitting and clapping and looking at the game from the binoculars let's go to the cricket field pick up the ball and practice that buying that one book today is your next practice buying two books is giving it away to another person hindu there is no hindu phobia today hinditva's definition is the love of hinduism of love of our own religion and that's what we celebrate today and please support and buy that book and give it away to your library to your friends to your family let them have an opinion whatever their opinion is let them have it but let them read it thank you last of all uh, people who bought the books they wanted signed by rajiv ji so we are going to uh, he is going to be sitting there please come in a line and he'll sign it as you come along and please read the book and if you can give amazon reviews that will be very well uh, very highly appreciated and thank you everybody have a great evening enjoy your dinner